Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, October 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. House ousts McCarthy from his speakership. Hunter Biden pleads not guilty to three federal gun charges. India orders Canada to withdraw 41 diplomats. The EU proposes a 5 billion euro military aid package for Ukraine. The UN approves sending a Kenya-led force to Haiti. The World Health Organization approves a second malaria vaccine. Bangladesh grapples with its worst dengue outbreak on record. Yelp and Texas sue each other over a dispute about crisis pregnancy centers. Two mRNA researchers win the Nobel Prize. And the U.S. issues its first ever space junk fine. In our top story, a historic vote removes Kevin McCarthy as U.S. House Speaker. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Fox News, NPR Online News, Associated Press, and The Independent. In a dramatic vote Tuesday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to remove Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, as House Speaker. The final totals were 216 to 210, with House Democrats largely joining in the call for McCarthy to vacate his position. This is the first time the Speaker of the House has been vacated through this process in American history. The move capped a day of intrigue on Capitol Hill, with McCarthy receiving a standing ovation from most Republicans after his speech from his ally, Representative Tom Cole, Republican of Oklahoma, before the final tally took place. Earlier in the day, Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, formally introduced a motion to vacate against House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, claiming that the decision was made due to a repeated breach of the agreement he made in January. Speaking on the House floor, Gates had claimed McCarthy would either no longer continue his role or would remain working at the pleasure of the Democrats. Replying on social media, McCarthy had responded, quote, bring it on. Gates had previously warned McCarthy of his intent to remove the speaker from his role if a short-term federal government funding bill was agreed upon, which was passed on Saturday. Gates had accused McCarthy of breaking the Hastert Rule, an unofficial convention within the party whereby a sitting Republican speaker will not allow the chamber to vote on legislation without majority party support. Gates alleges McCarthy agreed to this rule in January, but broke it during recent floor votes concerning Ukraine funding. Thank you, Eric, for laying out the facts. And on this program, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll begin this round with a right narrative from American Conservative. It's clear that McCarthy had not come close to holding up his end of the bargain following his ascension to Speaker of the House. Gates's message is not just about fiscal responsibility, Ukraine, or the border, but rather the problem of power. To have continued to endorse McCarthy and the Biden administration's form of governance would be to sustain the shadow oligarchy that continues to benefit from America's political norms. As expected, a Republican narrative to counter that spin, it's coming from National Review. Despite Gates's insistence, the problem within the House is not simply McCarthy, but rather an ideological divide within the Republican membership. While Gates and his supporters view the GOP as a revolutionary force, the majority of the party understands the importance of gaining small wins against the Democrat-held Senate and White House. Gates must work to heal the divides within the GOP now that this vote is over. And here's a Democratic narrative from the Los Angeles Times. The civil war between House Republicans highlights the wider dysfunction of the GOP. 
Self-styled House rebels are purposefully attempting to undermine their party's own tiny majority, while Gates's attempt to remove McCarthy ironically required more Democratic support than the conduct he had blasted the Speaker for engaging in. The Republican Party must solve its internal issues and focus on governing and policymaking on behalf of the American people. Hunter Biden pleads not guilty to gun charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NBC, The Daily Wire, and The Telegraph. Hunter Biden, the son of U.S. President Joe Biden, pleaded not guilty Tuesday to three gun-related charges, including possession of a firearm by a person who is an unlawful user of or addicted to a controlled substance, making a false statement in the purchase of a firearm, and making a false statement to the gun shop where he bought the firearm. The indictment, which came last month after a plea agreement over tax and gun charges fell apart, claims Hunter falsified a federal form by claiming he wasn't an unlawful user of, nor was he addicted to any stimulant narcotic drug, when he purchased a revolver in October of 2018. In contrast to the fiery disagreements reported during the original plea bargain, Hunter spent roughly 30 minutes in the courtroom speaking quietly with his lawyers before answering, Yes, Your Honor when asked if he understood the nature of the charges. This came after the Biden son's request to appear virtually was denied. After his not-guilty plea, the judge went over the conditions of Hunter's release, including supervision by a probation officer, pursuing employment, and abstaining from drugs or alcohol. If convicted, he faces up to 25 years in prison and a fine of up to $750,000. While such charges typically don't come with jail time, this legal dispute has become a political headache for President Biden. Republican lawmakers have simultaneously launched an impeachment inquiry and claimed Hunter and his father engaged in corrupt business deals in China and Ukraine, though the president denies the allegations. This comes as Hunter's legal team has also filed a wave of lawsuits against the Internal Revenue Service, Rudy Giuliani, and former Trump aide Garrett Ziegler, whom they allege breached his privacy rights and computer fraud laws. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. Between Hunter's failed plea bargain, subsequent prosecution, and evidence showing he used his father's influence to pocket hundreds of thousands of dollars from a Chinese firm, the Biden family is drowning in scandals. Though he's trying to hide behind his son now, President Biden is being exposed for the corrupt man he is, and his legacy will be tarnished for it. And here's the Democratic narrative from USA Today. Though Republicans are strategically using the phrase Biden family when talking about Hunter Biden's legal troubles, the reality is that not even the GOP impeachment inquirers have found evidence linking the president to his son. Joe Biden has been a family man from his earliest days as a county councilman in Delaware, so it's no surprise that he's chosen to back his son while he endures legal accusations. Hunter is innocent until proven guilty, and Joe has always been innocent. And the nerds from Metaculus giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 58% chance that Joe Biden will be re-elected president of the United States in 2024. Um, Have you sued Rudy Giuliani yet, Eric? Uh, You know what? I'm just waiting for that class action thing to come in the mail. I didn't sue him, but I did sue the drop of hair color that was running down his face. Oh, geez. (laughs) Yeah. I lost, but that's all right. It was worth it. According to a recent report, India asks Canada to withdraw 41 diplomats. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Financial Times, NDTV, First Post, Washington Post, and the Economic Times. India has asked Canada to withdraw 41 of its 62 diplomats in India by October 10th, the Financial Times reported on Tuesday. Though both countries are yet to make an official announcement, the report claims New Delhi has threatened to revoke the immunity of diplomats who remain after the deadline. New Delhi had previously sought, quote, parity in diplomatic presence, stating that the number of Canadian diplomats in the country is, quote, larger than what India has. This comes after India suspended visa services for Canadian citizens on September 21st, citing, quote, security threats faced by the Indian High Commission and consulates in Canada. India-Canada ties have become strained after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau accused Indian intelligence agencies of being involved in the murder of Canadian citizen and Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijar in Vancouver. Meanwhile, the U.S. has hinted at providing Canada with intelligence to ascertain Indian agents' involvement in Nijar's killing. However, India rejects the claims, calling them, quote, absurd and motivated. Those were the facts, and here's a narrative A from India today. Ottawa has long indulged its radical Sikh community, which is accused of keeping the members of Sikh separatism alive in India. Though the idea of Khalistan, the imagined independent Sikh homeland, is a dead horse even in India. Canada should know that showing little concern for a fellow democracy's worries is hardly a sign of good ties. We follow that up with narrative B, and it comes from New York Times. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, battling multiple crises at home, will face a tough national election in a few months and is using the bite less Khalistan narrative as an easy prop to shore up his strongman image. Any involvement in the murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil would be a gross violation of the nation's sovereignty. Ottawa must get to the bottom of the matter. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 50% chance that there will be a non-BJP Prime Minister of India before 2030. The EU proposes 5 billion euros in military aid after an historic meeting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Associated Press, and the president of Ukraine's official website. Ukraine is set to receive an additional 5 billion euros, 5.24 billion dollars, in military aid from the EU, the bloc's high representative for foreign affairs, Joseph Burrell, said on Monday. The announcement came amid an EU foreign minister's meeting in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, outside of talks at the UN. It was the first time that they had gathered outside the bloc's 27 countries or within a war zone, Burrell said, describing the meeting as historic. Borrell also sought to dispel notions that EU support for Ukraine had diminished, namely after the election of a pro-Russia government in Slovakia and amid Poland's dispute with Ukraine over grain. The EU remains united in its support of Ukraine, Borrell said. I don't see any member state folding on their engagement. Aside from the military aid, Borrell reiterated an EU target to train 40,000 Ukrainian troops and discuss potential plans for EU arms firms to create joint ventures with counterparts in Ukraine. Talks also focused on Ukraine's 10-point peace plan, as well as their ambitions of EU membership, reliant on a set of reforms Ukraine need to make. The EU will publish its first formal report on Ukraine's progress of these reforms in November. In his nightly address on Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that a key goal of the country was to start the negotiations on EU membership this year. He said Ukraine will definitely fulfill its part of the work, the seven recommendations of the European Commission. 
and it is very important that on the part of the European Union, all its member states, there is a similar readiness for a political decision on Ukraine on beginning negotiations. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Associated Press. The additional military aid for Ukraine is a clear message from the EU that it will continue to support the country in the face of its struggle against Russia. Although minor cracks have shown, Europe understands that its security lies in Ukraine defeating Russia on the battlefield. Here's Narrative B from the Washington Post. Despite the EU's affirmations, it's clear that Western support for Ukraine is slipping, underlined by events in the U.S. where Ukraine aid was dropped in order to avoid a government shutdown. As next year's U.S. election approaches, it is apparent that the cracks in the West's support of Ukraine are only going to deepen. And the nerds are at it again with their narrative coming from Metaculus. They say there's a 0.2% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024. The UN approves sending a Kenya-led force to Haiti. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The East African, NPR Online News, New York Times, PBS NewsHour, and Al Jazeera. The UN Security Council voted Monday to send a Kenya-led multinational armed force to Haiti to help suppress violent gangs. It would mark the first time a force is deployed to the Caribbean nation in nearly 20 years. The U.S. drafted resolution was adopted under Chapter 7 of the U.N. Charter, which illustrates that the situation in Haiti poses a significant threat to international peace and security. According to the resolution, passed with 13 votes in favor with China and Russia abstaining, the force will be on the ground for one year, with the review slated to take place after nine months. The multinational force is expected to guard airports, ports, schools, hospitals, and also vital traffic intersections. It would reportedly work with the Haitian National Police during targeted operations. Though it wasn't disclosed how big the force would be or how it would be funded, Kenya has previously proposed sending 1,000 troops, and the U.S. has pledged logistical support and $100 million in aid. Gang violence has reportedly killed over 3,000 and displaced nearly 200,000 people this year alone. According to the U.N., 5.2 million, almost half of Haiti's population, needs urgent humanitarian assistance. Thank you, Eric, for the facts, and we have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. The UN's decision to send an armed force to Haiti is much welcomed by the Haitians, who have long suffered from rampant gang violence. The move comes after many citizens have left their homes in search of a better life in the U.S. All eyes are now on the Kenyan-led mission to restore order and bring back hope and stability to an impoverished nation. Al Jazeera gives us the establishment critical narrative. Deploying a multinational force in Haiti would legitimize the unelected leaders of Port-au-Prince. Moreover, the Caribbean nation has had bad experiences with past UN missions, including a 13-year mission that was maligned by allegations of sexual abuse. There's much at stake here, and the international community can't afford another failure. The nerds are at it again from the Metaculous community saying there's a 50% chance that Haiti will become an upper-middle-income country before January 2050. The World Health Organization approves a second malaria vaccine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the WHO, the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. On Monday, the World Health Organization, or WHO, authorized a second malaria vaccine to help control the spread of a life-threatening parasitic disease that reportedly kills around 500,000 children in Africa annually. 
According to WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the approval was granted following advice from two expert groups that endorsed its use in reducing the risk of disease in children. The latest vaccine, which is manufactured by the Serum Institute of India and expected to cost between $2 and $4 a dose, will be first available in Burkina Faso, Ghana, and Nigeria by early next year before being made accessible in other countries by mid-2024. The Oxford University-developed three-dose vaccine is thought to be more than 75% effective, with protection expected to last for at least another year with an additional booster shot. The previously four-dose malaria vaccine is about 30% effective, and protection fades within months. Malaria is a mosquito-borne illness that mostly impacts pregnant women and children under the age of five. Melissa, thanks for those facts. Narrative A is our first spin coming from The Guardian. This cheaper and more effective malaria vaccine is pushing the world one step closer to a malaria-free future. Many more children will be protected from this life-threatening disease due to this vaccine. This could be a massive breakthrough in providing relief across malaria hotspots. Here's Narrative B from Global News. While this new vaccine is promising, it doesn't prevent transmission of the disease, so it will not be able to stop epidemics. Stopping the spread of malaria is going to require much more than vaccines alone, especially with the spread of invasive mosquito species and the increase in resistance to malaria treatment drugs. There's a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 41% chance that global malaria mortality rates will be reduced by 90% compared to 2015 rates by the year 2030. I have a friend, Eric, who just uh, is just finishing her PhD in, uh, in, in global health and uh, in public health, had did all kinds of mosquito um, research. Uh, and one of the things she did was develop an app that locals could use. Uh, this was in Brazil, where they could go um, and at, you know, at dusk when all the mosquitoes come out, take pictures of all these mosquitoes, where they are, when it happens, so they could better track, you know, where the mosquitoes patterns were. Oh, yeah, uh, the populations. To, you know, develop drugs like these. Right. Well, that's, yeah. wow, that's cool. Love that kind of research. That's so cool. 1,000 dead in Bangladesh's worst dengue outbreak on record. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, DW, Dawn, and The Straits Times. On Monday, Bangladesh's health authorities announced that dengue has killed over 1,000 people in the country since January. This includes more than 100 children aged under 15, while the number of infections has risen to more than 208,000. The figures for 2023 are Bangladesh's worst recorded for the mosquito-borne disease since it was first documented in 2000. The death toll this year currently sits at nearly four times more than that of 2022. In a recent 24-hour period, nearly 3,000 patients were hospitalized. All efforts to control the mosquito population have been ineffective, according to a consultant with Bangladesh's Institute of Epidemiology, Disease Control, and Research. Bangladesh had previously mostly only seen dengue cases during the annual rainy season. Now, patients are also admitted to hospitals even during winter months. This comes as the World Health Organization has warned that dengue, along with other vector-borne diseases like chikungunya, yellow fever, and Zika, is multiplying in new regions and at a faster rate due to climate change. The WHO stated in September that outbreaks like the one now in Bangladesh were a canary in the coal mine of the climate crisis. The El Nino climate pattern was also a factor cited for the dengue epidemic, and sub-Saharan Africa has also reported recent outbreaks. Here's Narrative A from Al Jazeera. 
South Asia is a frontline region in the global climate change war. Bangladesh, a riverine delta country, is bearing the full force of climate-related impacts. Longer-than-usual rainy seasons, high temperatures, and high humidity have led to an explosion of mosquito populations that are exacerbating this dengue crisis. Narrative B coming from Biomed Central. An overlooked factor in the dengue crisis is demography. South Asia, especially Bangladesh, is one of the world's most densely populated regions. This puts immense pressure on its public health system, especially due to unplanned urbanization. In addition, 1.2 million Rohingya refugees from neighboring Myanmar have particular health vulnerabilities. Bangladesh's healthcare system is not able to keep up with these population patterns. And here's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous community. This one says there's a 90% chance there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by 2100. Texas and Yelp sue each other over a pregnancy crisis center description. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, KXAN Austin, Reuters, The National Review, and USA Today. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and Yelp are suing each other over the online review company's description of some crisis pregnancy centers in the state, which Yelp claimed on its website typically provide limited medical services and may not have licensed medical professionals on site. Paxton's lawsuit filed on September 28 claims that the California-based business review giant engaged in deceptive business practices, harming crisis pregnancy centers. He called Yelp's notice about the centers not having medical professionals inaccurate and misleading. A day earlier, Yelp preemptively sued Paxton in San Francisco federal court, claiming that the notices about the pregnancy crisis center were true and protected free speech under the First Amendment. Paxton's lawsuit claims that Yelp added a misleading disclaimer on the crisis center's pages in August 2022 that violated the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices, Consumer Protection Act, and Business and Commerce Code. He noted that the centers do employ professionals and that Yelp didn't put the notice on the pages of pro-abortion clinics. In February, 24 Republican attorney generals sent a letter to Yelp CEO Jeremy Stoppelman requesting the company amend its notice about crisis pregnancy centers. Paxton's lawsuit is seeking an injunction to prevent Yelp from including any misleading notices and seeks a $10,000 penalty per violation. Stoppelman and Yelp, who have been outspoken supporters of abortion rights in the wake of Roe v. Wade's overturning in June 2022, amended the wording of the description in February to say that the crisis clinics don't offer abortions. Melissa, thank you for those facts. Now we check out the round of spins and it begins with the right narrative coming from PJ Media. Yelp, just like all other big tech companies, is discriminating against businesses and services that don't align with its viewpoint on abortion by putting false disclaimers on the pages of crisis pregnancy centers. Paxton is rightfully standing up to this clear violation of the state's Deceptive Trade Practices Act and suing Yelp for its intentional deception. The left narrative comes from Jezebel. Paxton is showing the extreme measures Republicans will go to in order to ban women's right to choose, as he now resorts to suing a company over a factually correct notice. Yelp has the right under the First Amendment to put any notice it wants about a company on the website, and Republicans cannot prevent this free speech in order to push their anti-choice agenda. Two mRNA researchers win the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Scientific American, ABC News, and Time. Two University of Pennsylvania scientists 
Cataline Carrico and Drew Weissman have won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for research that directly led to the first mRNA COVID vaccines. Carrico, an adjunct professor at UPenn's Perelman School of Medicine, was a senior vice president at BioNTech RNA Pharmaceuticals, which helped produce the vaccines. Meanwhile, Weissman is the director of the Penn Institute for RNA Innovation. The pair's first seminal work, published in 2005, described how they overcame obstacles to using in vitro synthetic mRNA technology, such as an inflammatory response by the body that involves the production of harmful cytokines. Their research was combined with two earlier discoveries, while scientists in Canada developed a fatty coating to help mRNA get inside body cells. American researchers stabilized the coronavirus spike protein that the new mRNA vaccines needed to deliver. The nearly two-decade-old research is now being used to develop treatments for other diseases, including mpox, formerly known as monkeypox, and influenza, as well as to train the immune system to recognize cancerous tumors. Thank you, Eric, for those facts. And here's the narrative A from Boston University. After 30 years of research and almost two decades since their breakthrough on mRNA, Carico and Weissman deserve the celebration and recognition brought by a Nobel Prize. Without their research, billions of life-saving vaccines wouldn't have existed, and the pandemic may have been far worse than it was. Their mRNA-based invention has already been applied to other vaccines and therapeutics, so we can rest assured the application of their work won't stop at COVID. The Swaddle provides narrative B. The Nobel Prize is an outdated mode of scientific recognition that was historically and still remains biased towards men and those working in the Western world. Additionally, rather than encouraging completion between researchers, the Nobel should be replaced with an award that incentivizes cooperation and values other sciences like mathematics and artificial intelligence, as well as medicine and physics. And the nerds are at it again with this time a prediction saying there's a 50% chance that a Nobel Prize will be awarded for COVID-related accomplishments in 2028. In our final story today, the U.S. issues its first-ever space junk violation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CBS, USA Today, BBC News, CNN, and The Guardian. The Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, announced a breakthrough settlement with Dish Network Monday as it imposed its first penalty related to space debris. As part of the agreement, DISH admitted liability for failing to properly dispose of its Echo Star 7 broadcast communications satellite. The Colorado-based television company had to pay a $150,000 fine for leaving one of its retired satellites floating too low in space. NASA recommends disposing of so-called space junk by either letting a craft run out of fuel and fall back to Earth or pushing it further into space. However, DISH disposed of its satellite at an orbit well below the elevation required by the terms of its license, according to the FCC. DISH first launched the Echo Star 7 into geostationary orbit, which begins 22,000 miles above the Earth's equator in 2022. The company agreed to move it 186 miles further from Earth, but only moved it 76 miles when it retired the satellite in 2022. Regulators have become increasingly concerned with space debris, as an estimated 700,000 pieces of space junk larger than 0.4 inches float in Earth's orbit. The satellite industry has largely been self-regulated, but the FCC has decided to weigh in as the objects risk colliding with other entities in space. In 2022, the FCC implemented a rule requiring satellite operators to dispose of their crafts within five years of a project's end. 
Melissa, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Wired. The FCC has taken bold action and is at the forefront of space protection and regulation. While pieces of garbage in space don't seem as pressing of a threat as climate change and garbage on Earth's surface, space junk could have serious repercussions in the future. And the FCC has taken strong leadership to regulate this problem before it gets out of hand. And here's Narrative B from Scientific American. The FCC's rules regarding the disposal of defunct satellites may have come too late, and it's clear the toothless regulator waited too long to act. Space exploration started nearly seven decades ago, yet it took until 2022 for the government agency to step into this wild, wild west, as companies were able to leave their old and useless satellites floating in space without any repercussion for years. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, October 4th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.